Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The first few verses of Mark's Gospel are packed with prophetic imagery, from the impossible concept of a path in the wilderness to the Baptist's position outside Jerusalem. The Markan prologue heralds the victory of the prophet's teaching against human cities and the imminent inclusion of those beyond the Jordan in God's city. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 143 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have talked extensively about the Pauline epistles. Why not jump into the Gospels? So we're going to start with the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When we hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a couple ways that we can understand this in English. The Gospel about Jesus Christ or the gospel from Jesus Christ. There's multiple ways that we can interpret that word. And I think the most accurate way of understanding it is the gospel about Jesus Christ in the way that we have in the beginning of several chapters in the early parts of Genesis, as we have the genesis of so-and-so or the generations of so-and-so. They're not generations by, but generations about. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What's striking to me here is the tension in Isaiah between the Lord, who stands out on the earth, and the rest of creation, including human beings, which have to lay low before the Lord. You have these beautiful passages about the valleys being straightened out. It's not the only place this occurs, but it does occur in Isaiah. So there's this idea of God coming in power in Isaiah and pushing everything aside. So that's part of the context here. But the other thing that's interesting about the path in the wilderness is that you don't have infrastructure in the wilderness. So you have God making infrastructure where there's no human infrastructure. And it's not infrastructure that you can lay your hands on. It's something he's building with the voice of his word. You know, he's preaching a path. Or his prophet is preaching his word, and the word is making the path where there is no path. And Isaiah is really interesting the way that it's split into two. The beginning part of Isaiah, where the people sin and end up in exile... And then the second half, where God promises that they'll be brought out of exile. And these verses come from the beginning of that second half, where God knows that the people are in exile because he sent them into exile, but is now describing the way that he's going to bring them back. 
Now, one thing that strikes me about this, why does God need to send a messenger? Can't God just say things? When it says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, why doesn't God just speak in the wilderness? Why does he need someone else to make paths straight? We have a tendency in our culture to think over literally, because in the ancient world, the king was the king when he sat on his throne. The king did not leave his throne unless he absolutely had to. And one of the reasons why is because, as we see in history, you have a king who goes off to fight with his army someplace. What happens while he's gone? Someone comes and sits in his throne, and now there's a fight between the old king and the new king. Which is a motif that's picked up in the Robin Hood myth, ironically. Yeah, it, it, this is, I mean, you have it since the ancient Egyptians before scripture. I mean, this is an ancient fear of if you leave, then you have to make sure that there's someone on the throne in your stead. Otherwise, you're stuck with the sheriff of Nottingham. Exactly, exactly. And so when you sent out your message, your messenger, when someone heard that messenger, they heard the king. So the only time you heard the king speak is if you were in the throne room or if a messenger came to you. And so we need to make sure that we don't separate the word spoken by God from God. When the word is speaking, that is God functioning. When one hears the word, God is there. God is sitting on his throne eternally. But when one hears the word, one is still hearing God. This is what makes the word divine. Well, let me extend the metaphor of Robin Hood. When the maid Marian refuses to acknowledge that the sheriff of Nottingham is the king and continues to manage her household as though it belongs to the true king, her household is not subject to the sheriff of Nottingham. And the reality of her household is the reality of the true kingdom as she waits for the king to return. So in this sense, when she speaks the word of the true king, the true king is present. This is the point you're trying to make. The true king is present, and for those who hear his word and obey, his kingdom is present, despite the fact that an imposter is sitting on the throne. And the way that one shows obedience in scriptural terminology is one walks according to the way. Crooked or perverse paths, it's the same word in Hebrew, crooked and perverse, show that you're not following the correct path. And so making the path straight through the word means he's giving you the ability to walk correctly by his own power, by his word. If you're walking in the desert and the shepherd tells you, go straight, and then the shepherd tells you, turn left, it doesn't matter if there's an actual road. The shepherd is speaking, and while the shepherd is speaking, he's creating the path for you. That's what's going on here in the first three verses of Mark. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here it's important always to read this against the backdrop, not just of Isaiah, but of all the prophets, that the word always comes against Jerusalem from the outside. Always. The gospel is not from Jerusalem. The gospel is not from the church the way that fundamentalists talk because it's easier to justify your choice to abandon your parents' religion if you can argue that the religion you're going to owns God. But nobody owns God. God comes from the outside with authority to the church. That's how Paul talks in 1 Corinthians. He is the apostle to the church by the will of God 
not from the church for the church to the church he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins which is the way that he's making the ways of the lord straight that people are now able to walk so you say oh well what was isaiah talking about according to mark isaiah was saying that by repentance and forgiveness of sins you are able to walk according to the path again repentance in hebrew is shuv which means to turn and whether you're walking on the path and then turn away in apostasy or if you're already turned away and you turn back to the path when you repent it means you're turning from the wrong path onto the correct path this is what Isaiah is trying to make clear the second part of Isaiah promised there will be a voice in the wilderness what Mark is saying is there is now a voice in the wilderness preaching and that's John the Baptist so the eschatological hope that was laid out in Isaiah is now coming to fruition and all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins and here I'm going to stress again the importance of proximity locality and direction people are leaving Jerusalem and Judea to go to the word notice how it inverts everything the way Christians talk today the word draws people to Jerusalem but that's not what's happening in Mark the word is undermining Jerusalem it's a very important point. You have to be serious and careful and attentive. And they're going out to be baptized in the Jordan River, which is on the edge. It's an eschatological river. If you think back to the story of Elijah and his mantle, and then the land beyond Jordan being the land of the Gentiles, this is where the movement of Scripture is going away from institutional power. They're going as far away as they possibly can and actually stay in the territory. It's the very edge of the territory. And if you're nervous about going to the edge of the territory, you shouldn't be if you have trust in the word, because Mark just told you, way beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, I had the Bible, so everything was fine. It's a very scandalous text, which unfortunately goes over people's heads because they don't know scripture. Well, and confessing their sins is also an important part because once the word hits in the center, there are two possible reactions. One is defensiveness. Couldn't you be a little bit easier on us, John the Baptist? Couldn't you soften your rhetoric a little bit? Or, John's got a point. I have some things that I need to confess, and you need to recognize this. And this is what John is spurring people to do, is come out and say, hey, I did rebel against the Lord. I did rebel against his word. I was disobedient. And so this is the beginning. The beginning of the manifestation of this hope that was promised in Isaiah is that people come out and say, we sinned. Because in Isaiah, it talks about what God is going to do. The only way that there can be any hope that there's going to be a better future for the people is if they recognize that they are perpetually rebellious. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. I always laugh at this verse because I can't think of one church school lesson as a child where someone didn't try to explain to me that he wasn't eating bugs. I'm amazed at how much time people spend trying to prove that he was eating a kind of plant and not bugs. But as in the case of the eye of the needle, whether it's an actual eye of the needle or a small door, it doesn't matter. The guy was hungry and not eating pleasant food. 
He ate what is being offered as far out from the city as whatever culinary delights he could find on the very edge of civilization. That's what he was eating. He was living in the palm of God's hand. That's the point. And I'm sure if he did eat bugs, he was satisfied. Well, camel's hair is what a shepherd would be wearing and a leather belt. Again, shepherds. No, we think of leather as something fancy as, you know, fur coats as something fancy. But for a shepherd, this is not fancy. Because when you ate a sheep, you then had sheepskin and you made a belt out of it or you made a coat out of it. When the first Christians came to North America, they saw people wearing skins. They were eating very simple food off the land. Why then did they come to preach to those people rather than hear what those people preached as a critique against them? Because the European settlers who came to occupy this land believed that this land needed their infrastructure. And they were blind to the infrastructure that the Lord provided the Native Americans before the Europeans came here. Because the Native Americans lived, as you said, like John the Baptist, God provides food in the land. If it snows here, we'll move to this section where it's a little bit warmer. If there's no game here, we'll move to this part of the land and let that part of the land rest until it can produce more game so we can live. And whatever we take from the land, we take with respect and we don't waste any of it. And we leave things in good order because it doesn't belong to us. This is the mentality of Genesis it's the mentality of the voice crying in the wilderness, the voice of the prophet, the voice of the shepherd. So important, the point you're making about the Europeans imposing worldly infrastructure on the Lord's garden in North America. They didn't want to leave the Jerusalem of Spain or Italy or Venice to come to America to repent of their sins, but they came to force their will upon others. And this is the great sin. And I know that my fellow Americans get irritated when I talk this way because no one wants to accept that at the founding of this nation, we went against the biblical God, but we did. Even if we didn't abuse the Native Americans, it doesn't matter. They were living the way the gospel calls us to live and we wanted to build cities. They didn't realize that in scripture, the word is always preached outside of Jerusalem. They left their Jerusalem, came to the New World, and named the cities Jerusalem, Bethlehem, in order to create an inside yeah. here even in the wilderness. They, as you say, Father, wanted to create their own infrastructure. And people quote this as though they were scriptural. They were not scriptural. If they were scriptural, they would have come and dwelt among the Native Americans beyond the Jordan and intermarried and blended in, and we wouldn't know the difference between a European and a Native American today. That is the truth, and that is a bitter pill to swallow, because then suddenly everything we do is under judgment. Well, I have news for you. Everything we do is under judgment. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I just recently saw a picture from the British colonial time in India that showed a British Raj having his feet cleaned by one of his Indian servants. And it's a difficult image to look at because you just see the power dynamic and how strong the difference is in class and in power. 
the Romans knew this very well. Anyone living in the Roman Empire knew this very well. Anyone living in the ancient Near East knew this very well. And so to say that you're below that station is a very humbling station, but not, oh, isn't that nice? He's so humble. But John the Baptist, if called to untie the sandals, he would be willing to. This is the difference. Whereas the Westerner who says, oh, I'm not worthy to do it, if called upon to do it, would they still do it? That's the question. It's one thing to say, oh, isn't that nice? It's another thing to say, if called upon, I would do it. The other thing to keep in mind is that John's statement, like Paul's statements in his letters, presupposes his authority. He's not, as you say, timid. Paul is the slave of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians, but he presents himself to his spiritual children as the patrician, the paterfamilias. He is not their fellow slave, the way people like to say, as though Paul's a slave, I'm a slave, we're all slaves together, how nice. And we can learn from Paul too. No, this is baloney. Paul's slavery is senior to your slavery. You are not allowed to talk about Paul as though he's a slave. He's your patrician. So John is presupposing the same thing here. I'm coming to you as one who is mighty, as your prophet. We just said he's speaking the word of God already. Now, in your eyes, to your ears, I am mighty, but I'm telling you that I am the slave of Jesus Christ, who is mightier than I. So it's not a wimpy, self-effacing statement. It's actually bragging because he's saying, after me, there's God. He's putting himself not next to Jesus, but just one notch down from Jesus, which again is how Paul talks. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus is going to come and manifest the power of God's kingdom through his teaching on earth. And the Spirit later on will be sent to ensure that until that kingdom comes, the word abides. And that spirit can't be controlled by any institution, let alone Jerusalem. And I always explain it in church. You've heard me say this a million times, Richard. The way to understand the Holy Spirit is to think of that song in The Sound of Music where the nuns are singing about Maria. And they have this beautiful expression, how can you catch a cloud and pin it down? You can kill Jesus. You can behead John the Baptist. But what can you do to the Holy Spirit? This week in Ephesus school, we were looking at Acts 13. And the Holy Spirit does something very specific in Acts 13, which is send people out. The Holy Spirit came and Saul and Barnabas went and taught. And then it happens again in the chapter. The Holy Spirit is specifically sending people out to teach. And that's why the Holy Spirit, like a cloud, can't be pinned down. Because as soon as it hits somebody... That person is out teaching. As soon as it hits another person, they're out teaching. And so what John the Baptist does is he can save your soul. But when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, you go out and you teach. And ultimately, this is the test of whether you've actually received the word and are obedient to it is when that Holy Spirit hits you and sends you out. Now, I don't want people to think they're apostles now. That's always where people's mind go. Now, we're all apostles. We're you're not apostles. We're not all apostles. We can bring the word of the apostles out, 
apostles receive the word from God. We don't receive the word from God. We receive the word from the apostles. Remember the hierarchy. It's an important point here in the prologue to Mark. It is God the Father. It is Jesus Christ. And then Jesus sends Paul. In this case, Jesus sends John the Baptist, who is analogous to Paul, in the hierarchical order. And we don't even get to talk to Paul or John the Baptist. We hear what Paul said when someone reads scripture to us in church. So we're already several notches down from the direct interaction between the prophet and Jesus Christ. It's very important, always. And an apostle is someone who had direct interaction in the Bible. Again, someone who was sent, who is not in the story of the Bible, in the Byzantine tradition, is called equal to the apostles, not apostle. Right. Holy Spirit has a specific function in Acts by which it sends you out. The difference between being baptized with water and with the Holy Spirit is the water cleanses the sin, the rebellion. It recognizes that you now are turned, you have repented. But the Holy Spirit is what keeps you on the way. It keeps you walking along the way, walking according to the will and the word of God. And that way, you're able to stay on the path. Think of it this way. The water gets you on the path. The Holy Spirit keeps you on the path. Whether you are in a Judean fishing boat or a Roman warship, the wind is going to blow in the direction it's going to blow. You either raise your sail and let it push you, or you lower your sail and go nowhere or sink and drown. Either way, you have no control over the wind. That is the function of the Spirit. God does what God does, and man either goes along with it or steps aside. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network